0: We just don't have to be those experts. We have to be able to talk to the experts. So if you don't understand how to do all of this, that's not a problem. You bring in expertise and you understand what they're saying because good experts can explain things to you. And then you learn it and you're part of it. ESG has exploded into compliance and business consciousness in 2021. Join Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, on the ESG report and learn about sustainability risks, opportunities, and issues that business leaders and compliance professionals need to know about regarding ESG.
1: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back for another episode and today I have with me one of my favorite people in compliance, Christy Grant Hart. Christy's well known in, in the compliance field, but today we're going to talk about while we both think the compliance function, and CCOs are the most well-suited to lead a corporate ESG effort. So, Christy, first of all, welcome back to the pod.
0: Thank you so much. It is truly an honor to be here with you, Tom. Thanks.
1: So, I think I read that you've had a recent anniversary for Spark Consulting. If I read that correctly, could you tell us about that anniversary and really where Spark is now?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, we hit our sixth anniversary and in our seventh year which almost feels impossible that we've been able to grow so much. So we have Ellen Hunt now in Chicago, Nicole Deschino in New York. We have people in Los Angeles now, including me, and obviously London where we started. Last year, we put out our first software, which is a business simulation game called Compliance Competitor that's been picked up by so many companies. It's just a really exciting growth time here.
1: You also published a book or co-authored a book, I should say, with two colleagues. How and what was the reception of your book?
0: So the book is called The Compliance Entrepreneur's Handbook, and it's about starting a business in the compliance field. And Kirsten Liston, Joe Murphy, and I co-wrote it after doing a session on the topic at the SCCE conference, uh, realizing that we had so much to say that we couldn't put it into an hour, much less anything less than that. And so we decided to actually write a book expanding on the topic. And it's been wonderful to hear people just be so inspired to start their own thing or to have the courage knowing that they've got a roadmap for it. It's great.
1: I like the word courage. I certainly understand that part. (laughs) Yes. Chrissy, let's maybe get into the role of compliance in ESG, starting off with where do you see ESG in relation to compliance in the overall corporate scheme of things?
0: I just think that they work hand in hand together. To me, you know, that G is a bridge between compliance, governance, board, those relationships that we have anyway. I think that there are some differences. I mean, I think at the moment, compliance can be a little bit lost in the shuffle with what can be a bit shiny object syndrome, but also can be a huge driver for change, for opportunity, for reputation enhancement, and frankly, just doing the right thing. So I think that there's so much overlap and so much similarity that we're very well positioned to take advantage of that.
1: Christy, one of the things you and I have in common is we are both incredibly passionate about compliance and the overall international fight against the scourge of bribery and corruption. I see that same passion with many people in ESG. Do you as well?
0: Oh, absolutely. Especially millennials and Gen Zs or Gen Zs as we call them in London. It's incredible how many people are really committed to fighting climate change and to having a fairer supply chain and making sure that people are being treated well in the world. I think that the capitalism gone awry thing is a problem and that people want to vote not only with their dollars as consumers, but also with their time as employees. It really matters.
1: So what skills does a CCO have or should have, which you believe lead us to conclude that a CCO is well suited to lead an overall ESG effort?
0: Compliance is inherently a multidisciplined task, especially when we add things like privacy or when we started having to do modern slavery statements. Those things inherently require, with privacy, IT's involvement and security's involvement. With modern slavery, corporate social responsibility, supply chain procurement, sourcing, managers on the ground, we are very skilled at bringing together people and putting programs into a framework. When you look at the seven elements of an effective compliance program is written into the federal sentencing guidelines, you see how to create a corporate program. And that just naturally lends itself so much to how to run an ESG program. You need policies, you need procedures, you need governance around it, you need training for it. All the things that we already do, you need monitoring and metrics. We have that capacity to use that same framework and the same stakeholder management in order to make this really successful. and I don't think there's another function that is as well-suited to doing that as we are or as experienced as we are.
1: Christine, the most recent communication we had from the Department of Justice on their expectations of a best practice compliance program was a June 2020 release of the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, and it had two components which to me really presaged why I think compliance should lead ESG. The first one was a mandate for the CCO and the overall corporate compliance function to really be the carriers within a corporation for institutional justice and institutional fairness. How does that, in your mind, tie into ESG?
0: Well, if you look at violating the ESG principles, what you see is really code of conduct issues, right? you see people acting in ways that simply are inappropriate. And I think that from an institutional justice point of view, if you're looking at the social elements of it, you're looking essentially at fairness. That is really a part of what is going on in the S part of it as well. So I think when we look at what doing the wrong thing is, doing the wrong thing for the environment, doing the wrong thing in your supply chain, not having good corporate governance, not looking at things like fairness within the structure of the business, I think that you're focusing on ESG-related ideas as well. To me, it's an expansion of if we are the keepers of the code, typically we are, then doing the wrong thing and the right thing is absolutely squarely in our remit. And that really, I think, is expanding into why we're getting more regulations, why the SEC is looking at doing regulations, why Europe is getting these different regulations and transparency requirements, especially in financial services is that idea that this needs to be monitored and that we need to have responsibility in it as a companies and corporates.
1: The second thing the Department of Justice said for the first time in the update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs was that the compliance function and CCO had to have access to all corporate data, not simply compliance data, but literally views across all data silos. How has it turned out that that incredibly prescient mandate really leads both of us to think that compliance is so well-suited to lead ESG.
0: That statement of all the data was one of my favorite lines. I think it's the line after that that says, and if not, why not? (laughs) I love that. It kind of gives that, hmm, how are you going to defend against that? I think having all data and all metrics is absolutely critical because ESG necessarily pulls from so many areas in the same way that compliance does. So I think that particularly with the E piece, that would always be the part where compliance goes, "Mm, I'm not very comfortable with that, but I can get the data. We don't have to be experts in everything. We have to be able to pull those stakeholders together to make a coherent program that works. So I think the all data piece really allows us to say, okay, there is a regulatory expectation, prosecutorial expectation that we have access to that data anyway. Nobody else has that kind of mandate, especially from on high and from the government. So it really just continually reinforces where we belong. I'd like to
1: now turn to some specific questions for each component of ESG, Christine. I'm going to start with what I think is the easiest or the most direct, and that's the G in ESG or corporate governance. What does compliance do now to support G and how can that role be expanded within a greater ESG framework?
0: Compliance has so much to do with governance. I mean, it depends on the organization. In a lot of organizations, compliance does function as corporate secretary already. Nearly every compliance officer I know at the highest level reports to the board anyway, or the audit and risk committee or the audit committee. There's already that relationship. And so it makes so much sense that as the function that we simply expand our remit of reporting, and that we talk about the different stakeholders in different ways that we're managing in order to get that board management. There's an expectation that compliance understands board governance and that they are in some ways making sure that it's working properly. Most of our clients manage the conflicts of interest disclosures at the board level. There is almost an oversight that compliance has over that process of board governance. So I think that it makes perfect sense that building on that relationship, building on that reporting, building on the expectations, especially in that DOJ guidance, that there will be a relationship, a direct relationship with compliance. Because that already exists, expansion of that is natural and makes sense.
1: Christy, one of the things that excites me about ESG is in the G prong, it's putting more focus back on governance and that the better governed a corporation is, typically the more ethically it behaves and certainly the more in compliance it does business. This new focus, or not new, but perhaps increased focus on G, is this something that you can actually talk about to clients and counsel clients on to expand the role of the board and corporate governance in general?
0: I think so. I definitely think so. I think that there are so many great studies that show governance not only makes a company more ethical, but more profitable. There is a stronger and more renewed sense that board members need a lot more integration into the company. The DOJ guidance says that the board should understand its role managing culture. Well, if you're not really involved in understanding the company, how on earth can you understand the culture of it? So I think that the renewed emphasis on really the board's true oversight as opposed to kind of show up once or twice a year and have no other real involvement in it, there's a higher expectation. And I think that there should be. And it's exciting to watch that happening.
1: Christy, I'd like to now move to the S. And ESG, but I want to stick with the board as the transition point because you're in California now and California was the first state to pass an initiative which required gender diversity on the board. I understand that's in litigation and perhaps some controversy there, but that move towards greater gender diversity I think leads to a broader perspective by the board, not simply in compliance but in all matters and I'd like to maybe use that to transition to the S and how you might see the initiatives under what we broadly call S also as something that compliance can or should lead.
0: Sure. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is such an important piece right now. It is controversial to have mandates. At the same time, countries that have had mandates have significantly more diverse boards. And there are many, 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 many studies that show that diversity of thought creates better commercial outcomes. So the arguments against it frankly fail From a commercial perspective. And I think that the more that we see diversity on boards, the better companies will do, but also the opportunities become more expansive. And that's something that I'm passionate about and feel that's incredibly important. I also think compliance should have much more of a seat on boards. I know that we've started to see a few CCOs that have jumped into board seats. I expect that to expand. So from the board piece of that, I think that there is a big push to see that kind of diversity. I also, when I think about the social element, I really go to supply chain, to corporate social responsibility, to what externally and internally those things look like, how you're vetting your supply chain to make sure we don't have modern slavery and human trafficking, making sure from the ESG perspective that we have sustainably sourced products, that we are not contributing negatively to climate as much as possible. Many of our clients are going to the net zero emissions goals. And really like focusing on their water use if they're in manufacturing. So I think that the social element is what a lot of people see in terms of how you're treating people and what is the expectation for maintaining and creating a diverse environment. I think we don't talk enough about the commercial benefits of that. I think that sometimes there's a sense of either that's the right thing to do or this is annoying and I shouldn't have to. Where instead we should be focusing on what diversity brings to the table, which is huge benefits for the company, even from just a commercial and bottom line perspective.
1: Christy, before you founded Spark Consulting, you were in the corporate world and in compliance in the corporate world. And I began in the compliance realm in the corporate world back in the first decade of this year, where not many people or not many companies were focusing on supply chain. My company did because that was what led to the FCPA violation. Mm -hmm. So early on, I saw the need to have compliance in the supply chain. As we've moved forward, that, of course, view has expanded. But I'm incredibly gratified to see that firmly in the S component with many of the initiatives and concerns that you've raised, responsible sourcing, human trafficking, modern slavery, other issues that have really brought, and of course, the pandemic with supply chain disruption, have really brought that supply chain component to the fore, but it's now seen as actually a positive in the S. I was wondering how you have seen the evolution of supply chain, both in compliance and now in an overall ESG program.
0: So I've been watching this very closely since we started in the UK and I spent nine years in the UK from 2011 to 2020, watching when the UK Modern Slavery Act came out and everyone went, oh, this is interesting. And then we have expansion of that into Australia, which has a much more sort of specific remit in its requirements. And then, of course, California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, I think those are going to expand. And I think that's a natural crossover with the ESG space, because what we're looking at ultimately is transparency. We're looking to find out what our companies doing in their supply chain. I think so much of this came out of the initial third-party due diligence requirement from an anti-corruption perspective that has expanded and become bigger and bigger. And one of the biggest challenges our clients have is how do we do this third-party management more holistically? So we don't just have quality or some sort of ISO review separate from the onboarding review, separate from modern slavery, and now frequently separate from environmental impact reviews or materiality. So I think that what we're moving toward is a very holistic version of supply chain management, but also the requirement for transparency, both from a consumer perspective and also from regulatory perspective?
1: Now, I'd like to turn to the E, and I've saved that for last for a couple of reasons. One, many compliance professionals like ourselves have academic backgrounds as lawyers and have worked in a general counsel's office or in private practice. And unless we practice environmental law, we may not feel like this is really something that we can oversee. I hope to disabuse people of that notion, but I wanted to start with why you think the compliance function and a CCO can really lead even the E effort within ESG.
0: I think that a lot of compliance officers come out of law, myself included, and there's the famous I became a lawyer because I don't do math sensibility. And I think that that science and environmental piece of that feel very much driven by math, very much driven by terms that are not readily understood by everyone, even carbon neutrality that says, well, I need to know how much carbon I'm using right now and trying to get that to zero. And what are those offsets? And there are so many pieces of it that feel unnatural to us. I think that number one, it's a new vocabulary, and we can learn it. We had to learn new vocabularies when we had GDPR and all the privacy pieces, especially US folks trying to deal with that new language. It's just an extension of the ability to learn. And the other part is, We just don't have to be those experts. We have to be able to talk to the experts. So if you don't understand how to do all of this, that's not a problem. You bring in expertise and you understand what they're saying because good experts can explain things to you. And then you learn it and you're part of it. I mean, what do you think about it?
1: Well, I first start with one time when I was a corporate lawyer at Halliburton. I was assigned a project that I knew nothing about. and It was clear to me it was a punishment assignment and I called my father. And my father had been a U.S. Naval officer, and he said, well, once an officer, always an officer. And if you're an officer, you're required to know everything. Hmm. You're a lawyer at Halliburton. If you don't know this, I suggest you go learn it, which was perfect advice. And you hit that right on the head. As lawyers, we have learned a wide variety of topics outside our original knowledge base, outside our remit, whether you're in private practice, whether you're in-house, whether you're with the government or in any other practice. so. Learning something new is, is not something that should be new, different, or unusual. But the other thing that you also hit on is that what we do in compliance, one component is after the framework is put in place, we monitor that framework. We improve that framework through continuous monitoring, and we report on that framework, which you touched on in the G, reporting up to the board or senior management, so that having that ongoing communications, that training, that reporting is well within the wheelhouse of what we do now. So that even if we do have to have an environmental lawyer or an environmental consultant help us, as of course, anyone who's heard me talk knows it's all about the documentation mm-hmm. and it's all mm-hmm. about the documentation. Greenwashing is perceived as a problem and you have to be able to satisfy a regulator, a stakeholder, a shareholder or others that your data is valid. And that's directly with what we do. In addition to If you don't know it, I suggest you go learn it. It's already what we do in many, many, many different ways. And so I've really come around to trying to give as much comfort as I can to compliance professionals, but make them see you're already doing this. Mm -hmm. You're doing it in areas that you were not an expert in. You may be doing it through your hotline. You may be doing it through your kind of HR component. You may be doing it through DEI or, or a wide variety of other things. You don't think you have subject matter expertise. So. I really want compliance officers to understand you have a huge role to play in the E. Simply if you're not an environmental technical professional doesn't mean you can't contribute in and still lead that effort. That's really how I feel about it. So let me turn to one thing that you were one of the first people I heard articulate the following. And I also have articulated it. And it is that if compliance doesn't move into an ESG leadership role or be heavily involved in ESG, it may spell the beginning of the end for the compliance function. So I wondered if you still have those thoughts or still have that feeling, see if we could explore that a little bit.
0: I think we're always going to be a function. Let me put it that way. I don't think it will be the end of the the compliance world, especially because the Department of Justice is not interested in us not having compliance programs and the mitigation piece is still going to be there. However, from a power perspective and from an influence perspective, the ability to continue to be relevant and important in broader ways is an opportunity. So if we don't embrace that opportunity and we don't put ourselves forward, I think that's one of the challenges is sometimes we sit back, we wait to be chosen as opposed to saying, hey, listen, I could do a great job at this. I already have the skill set. Let me just expand my remit bring in some other stakeholders, I think we run the risk of allowing a sort of new profession to come in and take over ours. Because there, in my mind, is so much overlap. We had a client recently who were were advising on both pieces say, it feels like these are somewhat the same thing. And I was like, yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Like, how do I separate these ideas? I'm like, well, one of them includes environment. But really, that can be part of the whole So I think that if we begin to see it that way, that the opportunity exists, that our remit expands, this is not going anywhere. It's attracting more legislation, not less. That gives us the opportunity to really say, hey, we're in charge of this thing. And if we're not, it runs the risk of people saying, well, compliance is just one of the things that we're looking at. And that really devalues what we've worked so hard to get a seat at the table.
1: Christy, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we go, we have a special bonus question for you. <laughs> as we've mentioned, you recently, if, if we didn't mention, you've recently relocated from London to Los Angeles, and you and your husband, Jonathan, have purchased a home. But you remodeled that home. And when I say you, I mean you too, <laughs> as in you all. So I was wondering if you might end with just some of your reflections of your massive DIY project. You've shared some of that on social media, but I really wanted to to ask you what your experience was and and perhaps Jonathan's as well.
0: Oh man. Yeah. He loves construction and I've gone along for the ride. We literally have replaced every floor except one in our entire two-story home now. Painted the whole darn thing, tiled stuff. You know what? I'm going to tie it back to ESG and something that you said, Tom. I have learned to do things that I had no idea I could. I've learned to lift things. I've learned all the process of laying floors and doing all kinds of. I, we screeded the floor yesterday to prepare for the tile. I mean, I didn't know what that word meant, right? And I said, Jonathan, how did you learn that? And he said, YouTube. Okay, but because he already had a skill set so strong in construction, he was able to just learn that. To me, it's exactly the same thing. If I can learn how to screed for a tiling floor, I can learn how to do all the ESG pieces, and frankly, anybody else can too.
1: Well, Christy, as always, it's been a ton of fun to visit with you. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with us. And if anyone wanted more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on in this podcast, where could they go?
0: So uh, my personal website is Compliance Christy, and that's K-R-I-S-T-Y, where you can find my blogs, books, speaking, etc. And then the company is Spark Compliance, S-P-A-R-K Compliance. Join us. There's all kinds of great stuff on both sites and lots and lots of free materials and helpful checklists, things like that.
1: Christy, I wanted to thank you again, and I look forward to continuing this conversation.
0: Thanks, Tom. Take care.